arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson? Yes, Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? What to think? The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and... You can see it's cylindrical uh, just a shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw in the... Thing must be hollow. He's moving. Keep those men back. Keep those idiots back. Come on. Keep them back. 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 Keep the eyes, it might be a face, might be almost... But heavens, something wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one and another one and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body now. It's large, as large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather, but face. Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is... That kind of V-shape with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, those quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back. It seems plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen, I can't find words. And, well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. The War of the Worlds from 1938, Orson Welles. With Hitler creating havoc in Europe, spontaneous broadcasts of impending doom were not uncommon. On Halloween night, the Columbia Broadcasting System and the Mercury Theater of the Air produced a live performance of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, so realistic that despite the warnings of this being a performance, many people still believe this to be real. Again, it's the suspension of disbelief, believing what you want to believe. Read a Stephen King book and you'll succumb to it. I placed audio from The War of the Worlds at the beginning of Sojourn because what fun is it to watch a sci-fi movie or read a sci-fi book if the aliens don't scare the hell out of you? Our aliens in Sojourn are scary with human attributes and quite hefty. For Captain Tom Loftus, Movements on a distant planet have somehow seeped into his dreams. And if that isn't enough, there are shenanigans taking place on Earth. So let's first step into Tom Loftus's dream sequence and see what transpires later in San Francisco in 2049, as the odyssey of Tom Loftus begins in Episode 1 of Sojourn by Robert P. Fitt. Chapter 1.
The inner vengeance spread over Altashar like a severed death claw devouring life. Trevor held his father's strong, calloused hand and followed the montane down the rock terrace mountain trail. Black smoke trails flumed toward the gray clouds above. The silver cluster ships had spun out of the vermilion skies with a gruesome energy attack on the village, convincing Trevor that the Montank survivors would stay on the run. He had only seen a few huge green corpses strewn across the river sands. His father called them Creods. They towered over the Montang, had thin bodies and heads larger than the Montang foodstuff bags. Yellow crusted blood leaked from their open wounds, and pink fangs framed their little mouths. The blue-black mesh eyes bore a little resemblance to his smaller Altasharian eyes. Trevor longed for the world before the cluster attacks. The advanced scout leaped over the trail rocks and the Montang stopped. It is written that the inner vengeance dwells within the Creod race. It is an evil that advances to destroy the Mantari. They behead the conquered and keep their skulls in cluster ships. How can we stop them? cried Sator. By resonating to oneness, only by becoming one through Tabun Shah can we destroy the interventions. We must flee the mountains from them. We cannot leave the mountains, said the scout. Sator held his shoulders. Why not? The cluster ships occupy the skies and cover the land all the way to Tarsan City. There is no way to cross without being seen. Many Montang members voiced sadness at the news. Too many Altasharians were already dead. His father said they had joined with Tabun Shah. Treba's own mother and sister ran from the attack last week. The scout yelled over their chatter. Wait! Wait! We have another course. We do. We follow the ancient legends. Listen to what the learned ones have taught us and find Tabun Shah. We may be the last of the Altasharian people. Tabun Shah, Tabun Shah is the last hope for all, Mantari. Trevor's father stepped forth from the confusion. The scout is right. It is said that the shrine of Tabun Shah contains the passageway to other worlds. That is only a legend, said a little man named Aok from across the circle. One of the white-bearded learned ones held up a worn and faded red book. The Montang fell to the ground as he lowered the book and opened it slowly in dusk's orange light. Trevor tried to hear his weak voice. The Tabun Shah ruled the Mantari, our sacred people. Hear the word of Tabun Shah. We have left our mark. The Bunshaf stretches to the sky. It is clear. The haven, a respite from the inner vengeance. It is the door to other worlds and forever. Where the Carpen meets the Beverlton above the Sempa, the way is set forth to the circle of one. Trust your convictions, and the passage shall be made clear. The way of Tabun Shah. Thunder again rumbled down the canyon. 
Trevor scrambled behind the rocks and blocked his ears as green flashes lit the clouds. The first blast was muffled and far away, yet the ground slowly shook. His father's arm locked around his back as pebbles and sand trickled down the cliffs. The mountains protected the Montang from the cluster probes. The Creods could not attack as long as the Montang hid below the rock ledges. The battle was distant as the afternoon light darkened. Occasional blasts soon faded and the frightening flashes stopped. The Montang stayed under the ledge until the cluster ships were gone. Trevor's father hoisted him into the evening air. He raised his arm and spoke loudly. You heard the learned one between the Carpen and the Berberilton. The two most prominent sky features and seen only in the upper part of our planet. Meeting at the portion of the sky, directly overhead, the Semta. Trevor let his inner soul be taken by the truth as he resonated to the oneness of Tabun Shah. Yet his head sensed the need to find the shrine and escape the Creod invaders. He resonated deeply and fell with the others to the ground. Loftus could not halt his mind's journey away from the wavery white light. Phil snapped his fingers and shook his shoulders. A befuddled look swept across his balding friend's thin face. After ten sessions under deep hypnosis, Phil should have already deciphered this Creod stuff. Chapter 2 San Francisco, California July 10th, 2048 The inner vengeance, the evil, he shouted. Loftus swiped away the sweat puddle from his brow. The regressions always zapped his strength, and not understanding his forays, the faraway planet, frustrated him. What the hell is going on? I feel it, and it scares the hell out of me. The evil, the interventions, it dwells within them. They cut off the heads of those they fight and keep the skulls. It's evil! Evil sometimes is the shadow within all of us. No, they are possessed by this inner vengeance. They're killers. Who? The hordes. The creods. And you feel as if evil drives them. Loftus's head turned. No, the inner vengeance is a force that resides within them. Only the oneness of Tabun Shah can banish the inner vengeance. Phil just stared at him. Loftus staggered to his feet as if all energy had drained from his body. He tucked the tiny bevel glass pyramid and attached silver chain inside his shirt. Indirect or evasive answers were unacceptable. Phil's psychiatric credentials with the Defense Secret Service were impeccable. Phil, I brought you over here to find out why I keep having these dreams about aliens and spaceships. Come on, what gives? Just exactly how long have you had these dreams? China when Zack and I were fighting in the Sino conflict. Well, that was years ago. Well, it's accelerated during the last year. Were you confined? I mean, because your official record tells me nothing. In the war, we, both Zack and I, were captured. Did it ever occur to you that the Chinese used advanced mind-enhancing techniques on you? Maybe they threatened to cut off your head. Phil, that never happened. Phil said nothing for the longest time. I listened to a report from the Central Feeds just last night. I wasn't going to bring this up, but... Bring up what? Asked Loftus, shaking his head. I trust no one. That's my credo now. 
Phil lifted his tablet into his palm. Well, there was a report in northern Canada of an alien sighting. I transmitted into my tablet. Okay, Phil, I'm game. Phil stared at the tablet. Portal, run the Canada audio. The machine clicked and the sound blasted. Was seen two times late Tuesday afternoon. One witness described the creature as alien in nature and well over seven feet tall near an isolated tundra stretch. A man driving home with his family in a pickup truck saw the being, whom he described as green-skinned and mesh-eyed, board a high-powered aircraft which disappeared north into the evening skies. No further reports have been confirmed. So what? said Loftus. Sounds like you're Creod. He waved his hand. What are you telling me? The Chinese made me pick up the central feeds in my head now? Phil walked over to Loftus's roll-top desk and sat in the creaky oak chair. He plopped the tablet on the desk and exhaled. Loftus, I tell you, I don't know what's going on. I've known you for 15 years, Phil, since I got back from China. You've seen everything that's happened in my life since then. We're good friends. Am I losing my mind? I mean, if it's turning to mush, just let me know. I have a theory. Loftus folded his arms. What, pray tell, is that? We live in a time after a worldwide economic crash where our cities are collapsing and surrounded by barrier walls. The gap between rich and poor has spawned violence in urban areas. Well, this mess never should have happened. That's what I'm saying all the time. Our cities are armed military camps. People have joined the gangs opposing the government, and they're in the streets with open warfare. The vice president killed by a rocket attack on the White House? Numerous attempts to kill the president? That news is all distributed by the central feeds to the media outlets, Phil. I don't even watch it anymore. I think you may be assuming responsibility for all of this because of what happened with you six years ago. I only know the dreams are real, and so is the hypnosis. More real lately. It's like I'm reliving them. Well, that's absurd thinking. Look, go back downstairs to your restaurant, Loftus. Be grateful you live over the bridge in an area untouched by violence, and you're not involved with the Panthers or the service anymore. There are power blackouts all the time. I lost a freezer's worth of food last week here at the restaurant. They confiscated my generator because it had fossil fuel. Right, but there aren't any armed patrols around this building. People aren't dying in Sausalito. Loftus extended his arms. If I'm not already crazy, I will be. You've become edgy. Owning the loft was not the same as fighting in the service, and Phil knew it. Loftus paced like a dog, waiting for its owner to return home. Edgy? Sure I'm edgy. Here running a restaurant and a bar, and we're falling into the dark ages? I should be sitting in the director's office. Instead, we have Norman King as President of the United States and that dumbass Harmon Mundy in charge of the service. My dream fell apart six years ago, didn't it, Phil? Phil nodded slowly. Loftus, 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 you have a pension for taking the world upon your shoulders. Nathan Allsworthy died on your watch, yes. You were the head of campaign security, but it wasn't your fault. Now you sense and fear what you call evil. You mean the inner vengeance. Yes, the inner vengeance, but you can't blame yourself. The old loftus luck. It's either really good or really bad. Nothing in between. 
Loftus stopped and clamped his arms again. He held his throat. Providing I keep my head. Are you coming downstairs? Maybe later. Right now I have to go back to the office. Bill tightened his hand on Loftus's shoulder as Loftus's wrist comm beeped. Tom, don't worry. I'll get to the bottom of these dreams, I promise. Loftus smiled, not really believing his friend would find a solution. He shook Phil's hand and waited as Phil headed down the stairs. Then he pushed an orange button on the wrist comm and spoke the code into the portal. Portal, 1111. A rolling series of beeps merged into a crackled transmission. Portal adjusted the gain. Desperado? Loftus's face tensed. No one had used his service cover name in years, and very few people even knew of its existence. Who the hell is this? Someone who needs your help, Desperado. Before everything falls apart. Can you hear me? I hear you. Who's your contact? asked Loftus, looking at the red digits of an external number on his wrist comm. I need your help. Yeah, and I need your contact. After a short silence, the man blurted out more information. Crow's Peak. Frank DeLuca, Loftus's former service officer, now a special assistant to President King, had used Crow's Peak as his service name. The voice suddenly gained credibility. Okay, I'll bite. Crow's Peak. Very interesting. What do you want? And what's your cover? Loftus perked his ears as the man described how he had met Crow's Peak, but he would not say where or when. DeLuca had designated him as Water Balloon and wanted no contact until Loftus had fully debriefed him. Loftus listened for 10 or 15 more seconds until Water Balloon talked about being involved in a covert operation. Then he erupted. You listen to me, Hotshot. We've been on this line for 48 seconds. It takes 57 seconds for the best portals to debug a Band 65 transmission. Loftus shouted out a safe external number on the San Francisco side of the bridge and said he would be there in 10 minutes. Then his RISCOM timer light flashed red, but he did not override the automatic termination. Dozens of portals and some distant monitoring station were now in the preliminary stages of unscrambling his signal. Loftus risked lockdown time by possessing an illegal Band 65 RISCOM. As he jogged across his office, Water Balloon's call stirred his stomach like a spinning drink in the bar blender. Over the past few years, he had stayed away from anything resembling intelligence work. Other than his alien nightmares, things at the loft rolled along smoothly. Getting involved with Frank DeLuca, he thought, as he bounded down the stairs, was not the most prudent course, but fighting the lure of adventure enticed him. Six years had passed since his last official assignment. In the underground garage, he jumped into his antique red convertible, started the car, but hesitated. Did he really need this aggravation? He pressed his lips and shifted into reverse. He followed his backward progress on the dash screen. His fingers wrapped around the shifter. He wanted redemption in his life and the excitement of covert work consumed his every thought. Shifting the clutch, he skidded up the concrete ramp. The sun glare hit his eyes as he spun around and merged into traffic. He flipped his sunshades and thought about DeLuca. Not many people had access to his old cover. As he drove toward the bridge, he wondered about the real importance of Water Balloon's call. 
out of habit. Just like the old days, he repeatedly checked his rear camera as well as his mirror. He shifted with the traffic flow. The easy thing would be to turn around and drive back to the garage and spend the evening at the restaurant. Traffic clogged as water balloons' words inundated his thoughts. Precious minutes ticked by on his wrist comm. He tapped his fingers on the wood steering wheel. Maybe this was just a setup like six years ago. As he gazed over the shimmering bay water towards San Francisco, an ugly scenario came rushing back like the incoming tide under the bridge. His idol and his mentor, D. Nathan Allsworthy, had just received the party's nomination in Long Beach. Allsworthy had been relaxing in Alaska for three weeks after a grueling schedule during the primaries. Allsworthy would arrive by boat for his grand entrance at the convention center. Captain Thomas B. Loftus commanded all security for the campaign. He had taken all the precautions to clear the harbor and his people had scanned Allsworthy's boat a hundred times. Even the satellites, the sky patrols, and the bay boats did not see anything unusual. The explosion tumbled through time now, and the fireball flared upward. Back then, he knew immediately his career had disintegrated along with the debris raining down through the balmy air. There would be no general election campaign. The scapegoat, Captain Thomas B. Loftus, would brood on the sidelines as the vice presidential nominee went down to a stunning defeat against Norman King. Allsworthy would never have walled off the cities. He had walked with the masses through the barrios and the slums and invested in industry zones without polarizing people. His planned inauguration, all the hopes to stabilize the economy through appropriate tax reductions, urban revitalization and new industries were only fleeting incarnations now. Loftus was a fool for rehashing it. He finally accelerated toward the dull red golden gate, but quickly slowed at the military barricades. Troops clad in all of fatigue surrounded the green camouflage convoy trucks. He could remember a time when he crossed the bridge freely with no surtax on his fuel. In the distance across the bay, a 15-foot cracked concrete wall with internal sensors with barbed wire tangled above lined the waterfront. Phil was right about his living on the Sausalito side. The portals evaluated his entry card, taxed his use of fossil fuel, and then troops waved him through the checkpoint. Loftus drove under the suspended cables and crested the bridge. Once off the bridge, he shot down the ramp and slid across the stones to the land portal behind the rest area building. He fixated on his image in the side mirror. His bright blue eyes longed for action as the wind blew back his sandy hair. Eleven minutes had passed since the end of his wrist comm transmission. He crossed his arms over his chest. To his right, the troops moved traffic across the bridge in pulses like his pounding heart. This was not an ordinary call with the lucre involved. The park's landline ring shook him, and he ripped the receiver from the hook. Yeah. Desperado. Who the hell is this? Water balloon. Okay, it's time to level with me, buddy. I would prefer not to do that, he said. At least not right now. Look, start talking or I hang up. Crowspeak told me to come directly to you. My life is in danger at this point, and I am on my way to San Francisco. Loftus could not resist getting involved, and DeLuca was asking for his help. He owed DeLuca from way back. The line hiss hung like a stormy wind in the earpiece. Are you there? 
Listen, people are being murdered. What people? asked Loftus. Crow's Peak said only you could unravel this. He said Rima is involved. How do you know about Rima? I don't. That's what he told me to tell you. Research in mechanical application, the advanced scientific development side of the service, hidden from Congress and the public, had produced striking advancements even when he was in the service. I will contact you again. The transmission ended. He hung up and stared at the phone. He peered around the log building and back to the bridge. Loftus, what the hell have you gotten yourself into? He turned toward the bay and took a long breath. One of the most powerful men in the country had directed water balloon to him. The sailboats moving gracefully along the inner bay contrasted with the turmoil brewing in his head. His life had slipped into a secure routine at the loft, and he was hesitant to break the cycle. Yet the thought of getting involved proved too compelling. Chapter 3 Four years ago he built the loft to overlook the bay, not just for his customers, but for himself. The city lights twinkled now as he paced the outside deck. Zack, overdue, had left over an hour ago. He raised the frosted scotch and water to his lips and smiled, knowing how much he thrived on stress. He longed for the field assignments and risking his life chasing down real and perceived enemies. Maybe he needed danger to confirm his own existence. His wrist comm sounded and 1111 flashed in bright red on the black crystal display. Zack had just indicated Waterbloom was in the restaurant van. Loftus finished his drink and plowed through the restaurant patrons. As he passed into the main dining room, a few people waved to him from the congested outside canopy. His staff of waiters, carrying full food trays, darted between the tables, and the room buzzed. Not a bad showing for a Thursday night. He pivoted into the smoky lounge. Rowdy people lingered as vamp music rumbled like a big band combo from a hundred years ago. He jaunted up the wood staircase to his office, pushed the alarm code, and once inside, walked along the window span above the dining areas. At his desk, he slid open the drawer containing an interactive reality viewer and switched the main screen to the loft's underground garage. At any moment, Zack would pilot the white restaurant van through the street entrance. Now the adrenaline flowed. Maybe getting into a clandestine operation after the Allsworthy fiasco was only a dream. By helping DeLuker, he forced himself back into active duty, but he risked harm and Mundy keeping him under surveillance. His wrist calm sounded again as he scanned back to the lounge screens. Aloha, said Zack. The white van with the loft and deep green letters on the side hurtled over the street hump and dipped into the garage's low light. Loftus smiled as Zack skidded next to the concrete delivery dock. Bushy-haired and forever smoking an illegal stale cigar stub, he emerged in his jeans and gray sweatshirt and drew his long-barreled service 44 Magnum. He trotted around the hood and yanked open the passenger door. Water balloon was short and thin, probably in his 20s with tight blue eyes and short dark hair. He gingerly stepped onto the concrete. The portal scanned his image for a background check. As he followed him on another screen through a kitchen corridor, a composite profile complete with image appeared in the corner of the main screen. O'Brien, Mark J., Appleton, Vermont, Bond, 401-32, marital status, single, IRS classification, local homeland security officer, Appleton, Vermont, no arrests, 
further information available. Loftus compressed his brow. He went to college in Appleton, Vermont, and Kath was still up there. On the third screen, Zack motioned the kid up the office stairs. Loftus stood and faced the door. Zack entered his code and the door beeped. O'Brien looked scared as he entered the office. Nobody on the scanner, Captain. We weren't followed. Zack shut the door and reactivated the security locks. He tells me that nobody knows he's gone and he has Thursdays and Fridays off. Loftus sat on the edge of the desk and stared at O'Brien's innocent face. He would give O'Brien ample opportunity to lie. Drink? No, no thank you. Loftus moved toward him. Okay, who are you? Maybe I will have that drink. He wrung his hands over his folded blue windbreaker as Loftus opened the cherrywood liquor cabinet across from the screens. You are desperado. I am. Loftus poured a hefty shot of whiskey into the water and mixed it with ice in a heavy, clear glass. He retraced his steps across the office, leaned over, and gazed into O'Brien's watery blue eyes. Here. Now who are you, and why is your life in danger? O'Brien sipped the drink and squinted. My name is Mark O'Brien. I'm a Homeland Security local officer. Interesting. H.S.L.O. O'Brien, said Loftus, and he sat again on his desk. You don't look like a homie to me. You look more like a recruit. Appleton is isolated, a rural area in the mountains, not like the cities. I joined the Appleton segment last November. Loftus looked at Zack and back to O'Brien. Appleton, Vermont, correct? Yes, sir. I went to school in Appleton, New England University. Loftus shook his head. How does some rookie HSLO in a hick town like Appleton get placed in contact with Crow's Peak? O'Brien gripped the glass. His voice quivered. I've been given information. I don't know exactly what Rima is. That's classified information. You know that, don't you? asked Loftus. Does the name John Garvey mean anything to you? Loftus, his face solid, said nothing. Garvey was a high-ranking service officer, a cowboy, willing to take chances and very sure of himself. Considered ruthless, he carried out orders without question. Perhaps Mr. O'Brien uh, would like to take things from the top, said Zack as he checked the screen. He and Loftus both removed their guns. Loftus trained his weapon at O'Brien's head. The kid's eyes opened wide behind the thick glasses. What do you know? Now he stammered. Back in Appleton is the government operation, a, a project going on west of Southeast Mountain. Loftus had never forgotten the area from his college days. He pictured the angled mountain cliffs appearing like a tomahawk against the Vermont sky. This place is near what they call the Notch in Route 114. I know the area you're talking about, said Loftus. Twenty years ago, we all knew there was some kind of government warehouse up there. You could see it when you were hiking. O'Brien nodded, still holding the drink. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. What's the point, O'Brien? I met a guy a few months back who works inside the project. Loftus furrowed his brow as he glanced at Zack. Why would there be a project up there? O'Brien downed the drink, cleared his throat, and his words were raspy. I didn't know at first. Well, what was the guy's name? asked Zack, adding a flame to his stubby cigar. Joey. That's it? Just Joey? asked Loftus, the tension mounting. 
You said you were an HSLO, and you didn't get his last name? He was a friend. We met at one of the college bars. I wasn't interrogating him. Loftus pulled the glass away and set it on the desk. O'Brien paused and then spoke loudly. Maybe the liquor was getting to him. He reported a company called Denver Communications. He told me they were involved with things that could only be described as science fiction. Denver Communications, that sounds like a front, said Zack, puffing. Check it. Joey didn't know about the work outside his area in Appleton, but his contact said the potential for the wrong people to be in possession of this new technology was staggering. Just what he was doing was unbelievable. They were developing these satellite transformers. Loftus tilted his head. What are satellite transformers? An electrical transformer that transmits electricity invisibly. They call it subatmospheric. Oh, come on, O'Brien. Loftus pulled Zack behind the desk and spoke in a low voice. You don't believe it, do you? Maybe just a little bit advanced, Captain. Rima would attempt something like that, that's true, but it's still quite a leap. Maybe there's more to this than Rima. What can we do about it, Captain? Loftus pressed his lips. He lowered his voice and exhaled. But if Frank is asking for our help, I owe Frank. We all owe Frank. Loftus nodded and walked slowly back to O'Brien. Number one, O'Brien, I want confirmation from Crow's Peak before I do anything. Second, how does this put your life in danger? You told me on the land portal that everyone in town thinks this is a harmless research project. The selectmen, the local committees have all been told that superconductor research is going on up there. See, we're away from all the fighting in the cities. The urban collapse didn't really affect Appleton. No one, including the press, questioned the superconductor stuff, but they still don't know about these killings. He removed a reflective gold disc about the size of a quarter and handed it to Loftus. Loftus noted the service code bar in the lower right-hand corner. Okay, what about the killings? Who's been killed? asked Loftus. O'Brien pinched the bridge of his nose. Joey told me people in high places. Am I supposed to be rattled because people in high places have been killed? Is that it? People are dying every day in the cities, O'Brien. I want to know who specifically has been killed. People who own or control energy concerns and they've bought out other companies. Really? Zack snuffed out his cigar and crossed the room. Well, that would make sense, Captain. Joey told me they've demonstrated the Transformer on a small scale. Loftus turned back to O'Brien. But they're gearing up for something called Phase 1, when everything is brought together. But you don't have a list of those who have been killed, asked Loftus. Dr. Vandermeer has the list in his office at the university. Dr. Horace Vandermeer? Yes. Loftus rubbed his chin with his clenched fist as Zack mouthed Vandermeer's name. Now two high-ranking people from the service were involved in this operation. He worked through the university. He told Joey that a few deaths were necessary in order to implement Phase 1. O'Brien's eyes moistened. He never told Joey the whole picture. And Joey is dead, isn't he? asked Loftus. Yes, I'm the one who found the car. He told me he was an engineer, not an assassin. 
Joey was the person who gave me Crow's Peak's portal address. He said to use it if anything happened to him. Now they've killed him and could just as easily kill me. Well, I won't argue that point. Loftus tucked his gun under his sport coat and put his hand on O'Brien's shoulder. Listen, kid, took a lot of guts to follow through on this thing and come out here. They must suspect me now because I hung around with Joey. What can you do for me right now? I don't know. The first thing we need to do is to get you to a safe place, Zach. See if Mikey is still in the loft. We'll put O'Brien in his apartment for a few days while we figure this thing out. Yes, Captain. Zack walked to the screens. And Zack, run a complete check here on Mr. Waterbloon, and I want a guard stationed outside Mikey's apartment. Use one of our security people here at the bar. Bring O'Brien over there now. If Mikey is downstairs, tell him I'll be in my place. Will do, Captain. Zack gazed up from the screens with a cautious look in his eyes. Tom, are you sure you want to get involved in this? Loftus produced a short laugh and held the disc in his hand. No, but if Frank wants me in this, then I will get involved. I'm not worried about Harmon Mundy, but John Garvey scares me. Agreed. One thing at a time, Zack. Let's get O'Brien to safety. O'Brien stood slowly and gulped. Thank you. Don't mention it. Loftus smiled and shook his hand and then returned to his desk. On the screen, he watched O'Brien and Zack leave the office. With their departure, the high-pressure way of life returned like a rumbling quick-rail train down a darkened track. He stared at the restaurant screens and worried about possible intelligence contacts who might have been planted in his restaurant right now. Light-headed, he held his temples and hoped he would not retreat into his dream world. It was no less real on Altashar, traveling with the Montang and fleeing the Creod creatures. San Francisco seemed more like a dream every time he left Altashar and came back. Maybe getting into this project and working with Frank DeLuca would stop the vivid images of star cruises, aliens, and distant planets. Chapter 4 DeLuca's hair was grayer, but his heavy-set frame, long face, and bulbous nose hadn't changed. He sat in front of a picture window with a dozen wood panes and a forested slope outside. A glass pendulum clock with a brass frame sat on the rear table. Loftus requested that the tablet start the frozen file. Tommy, this is going to be short and sweet. O'Brien has stumbled onto some service shenanigans up at Southeast Mountain where you went to school in Appleton. Monday has told us they're doing superconductor research up there. So I went up there, and I think they're bullshitting me. Joe was my contact. Now, they're doing something with electricity transmission and clearly hiding it. Tommy, you're outside the loop now. Either you or Zach or your contacts need to find out what the hell is going on up there. I know Crazy John is involved, and so is Horace Vandermeer. I think somebody's tapped into my sights and my own personal lines in Washington. That's why I sent this file from an archive portal. When you do call me, use my old service band, but only when you have proof of what the hell is going on up there. Leave all reports encrypted via this portal archive address. DeLuca leaned forward and smiled. I'll tell you one thing, Tommy. I'd like to put away a few at Chucky's Bar in El Paso. Loftus grinned and thought about the old days in the service. Your reward in this gig will be a 16-ounce spiker. 
if you still have your old drinking shoes on. Good luck, Tommy. Loftus pinched the disc when it popped from the kitchen portal. He crossed the center room and deposited the mirrored disc in the center fireplace's yellow and blue flames. The disc shriveled and bubbled into a quick black puff. Loftus smiled as he thought about staggering out of Chucky's with DeLuca around ten years ago. After all the time he spent with Frank, he had only spoken to him once since he left the service, four years ago, at a conference back in the city. He missed Frank, and he missed the adventure of putting his life on the line. Outside his window span, the walls and fortifications in San Francisco were not visible at night, but the jet copters shined high-powered searchlights between the buildings and onto the city streets. The local gunfire echoed across the bay when the windows were open. He looked up at the spread of stars across the evening sky. Although he remembered very little about his own early life, the presence of the stars always reassured him. The stars were always there no matter what happened in his life. He looked back into the fireplace's dancing flames. DeLuca knew of his college days in Appleton long before the present urban turmoil. So many things were undone when he departed Appleton 20 years ago. On the day that he exited Vermont, Kath stood motionless at the bus terminal downtown. Racked with guilt, he had traded Kath for the service, throwing away all the dreams of marrying her, having a family, and settling down in Appleton. He left Kath because tempting fate with living his life on the edge and living to tell about it was the ultimate thrill. Yet he always regretted leaving her from the second he stepped on that bus to this very moment. Now Frank DeLuca wanted him or his operatives back in Appleton. His security alarm buzzed and he turned from the fire. On the door screen, Mikey stood in his brown leather jacket, blue Oxford shirt and jeans. He held a frosty beer mug from the loft. Loftus pushed the remote and the door slid open. Mikey strolled inside and immediately raised the mug. Well, Zach tells me you've got a story for me. Loftus grinned. Is that what he said? Yeah, and you knuckleheads are sticking some guy in my apartment? This is the big one, Mikey. Oh, they're all the big ones when you're not crossing the wall into the city. Loftus trailed him into the central feeds room. Mikey opened up all 525 bands on the front wall screen. You gonna watch them all at once, Mikey? Mikey instructed the portal to activate the feeds, and then he threw his leather coat on the couch. Don't you want to watch my report from the feeds? I don't watch the news anymore, said Loftus. I thought you worked for Band 62. 200 bands picked up my report, Tom. The huge red numbers flashed on the wall screen surround. Band 62. They were enveloped in a three-dimensional image of the studio. The surrounding scene from sky to ground and all around mimicked reality. It's like we're right there. Yeah, but it's not real, Mikey. You should watch the central feeds more often. Loftus studied the media reporters at the desk up front and scanned the audience. The scene instantly switched to a band playback of a gang battle in New York City. Part of a barrier wall had exploded north of the city. Loftus cautioned himself that he was only watching a simulation. This is damn dangerous. Cities are battlefields. No, not the cities, Mikey. This whole scene we're standing in, we're all dependent on the central feed's distribution to the bands from the portal. It's dangerous to get all your information that way. That's all I'm saying. 
Well, there's nothing I can do about it. Consistently getting my reports on the central feeds means advancing my career. Commercial, as if they were inside a fast-moving sports car, startled Loftus. He smiled at the realistic blue ocean beyond the rocky escarpment. Again, we're not really there. Well, there's nothing I can do about that either. Tom, this is my livelihood. When I get the big one and run the central feeds, I'll change all that. <laughs> then the screen flipped to troops guarding the outside of a baseball stadium. The scene switched inside and the game was in progress. On the replay, Mikey spoke about the team and talked with some of the players. Loftus felt as if he were right at the game. Well, what do you think now, Tom? I want you to go back east. Where back east? The room moved through the stands, passing armed soldiers as Mikey interviewed some of the fans. See that blonde? She gave me her RISCOM address. Loftus smiled. Vermont. Appleton, Vermont. Your Appleton? He turned as the game continued. New England University, Appleton? Yes. So, you've finally decided to go back and look her up. Something else is going on. I want to show you a file of Zack and this guy O'Brien arriving earlier. Loftus put his hands on his hips. Portal. Dissolve screen. Cue up disk back from my office and create a screen ahead. The virtual image of the game shattered to darkness and a smaller rectangular screen appeared within the larger area. Take a look at this. Zack joyriding in the restaurant van again? Has he been joyriding? asked Loftus as he smiled and let the file open. Mikey set down the beer and closely watched O'Brien get out of the van. That's the guy you're putting in my apartment. He looped his leg over the sofa arm as the questioning began in Loftus's office. With his arms folded, he never turned from the screen. He looked up at Loftus when the file ended. Well, why aren't you going back there yourself? I need an advanced expedition to see if this is real. I know your ambition. You uncover any of this and believe me, it will dominate the feeds. Mikey, his arms still crossed, turned in the gray light. It's her. You don't want to see her again. Loftus said nothing. Mikey had so quickly analyzed his motives. Some things are uh, better left in the past. You never should have left her. Loftus squinted. I don't want to talk about it. Listen, Dr. Horace Vandermeer is at the center of this. Getting into his records at the university would break this wide open and get you one hell of a story. And then there's this phase one nonsense. I don't know if I want to get in the middle of something like this. Loftus sensed he was considering it. Risky, risky. I'll pay your expenses and double whatever you usually get for a week's work. Double? Big deal. Mikey, I need your help. Mikey looked at O'Brien's frozen image on the screen. I want all the rights to this feed. I don't want this thing to end up in some classified service archive. You should be doing this, and she's the only one stopping you from going back to Appleton. Someday you're going to have to resolve this, Tom. I understand that, but I thought you'd jump at this, Mikey, unless you plain don't feel you can do it. Loftus spun around and left him inside. He walked over to the kitchen screens and scanned the loft. Mikey appeared in the room's arched doorway. What is your opinion of all of this? Have I signed you up? Yes, yes, you've signed me up. Now what do you think's going on up there? Probably a service project, but not as grandiose as O'Brien thinks. 
What about the murders? Mikey shook his head and paced around Loftus. I'll tell you what you really want. You want to nail Harmon Mundy and get him out of the service. Correct? Oh, I fully admit that. Loftus opened a wall cabinet and removed another illegal wristcom. He visualized the bulbous Mundy at a Washington meeting ten years ago. Yeah, that's part of it. Oh, here we go, a serviced RISCOM. Does that make me a secret agent now? Loftus placed it in his hand. It's set to cut any conversation longer than 57 seconds, the time it currently takes them to trace the signal. Remember that. Be careful and use this discreetly if you have to, and then direct me to an external landline. And this thing will work way back on the East Coast? Right through their ComDiv satellite. Mikey stared at the wrist comm and looped it around his wrist. I want all the rights on this story, Tom. You can make a bundle on a feed like this, said Loftus, patting his shoulder. Ah, it's not the money. Advancing your career? asked Loftus. No, it's you and all your service nonsense. That's all I've ever listened to you ever since I've known you. You and Zach and your careers as elite panthers in China. He pointed at Loftus again. I'm going to show you I can do this, and I'm going to get it on the central feeds. Well, good. When can you leave? Mikey fumbled with the wrist comm. Sometime tomorrow. Tell me how this damn thing works. Well, don't touch the band selector unless I tell you. Transmit and receive on the left, that orange button. And the volume is on the other side, the white button. Just speak my portal address. Very simple. Yeah, simple. He walked Mikey toward the door. Speaking of electronic equipment, Zack has a backpack full of goodies you need to take with you. Oh, no doubt he does. Call me as soon as you get to Appleton. Understood, Captain, said Mikey, pretending to salute. You don't have to take this story, Mikey. I love risking my life. I do think rural Vermont is a lot safer than the inner cities. People like John Garvey play for keeps, no matter where they are. Loftus opened the door. What about Mundy? asked Mikey. Jackass, don't get me going about him. I'll call you tomorrow, Tom. Good, listen, when you get back, you, me, and Zach will plan another camping trip up to Tahoe. Oh yeah, stale cigars and old war stories about the China War. What more could you ask for? Mikey saluted again on the way downstairs. Loftus wondered if he had baited Mikey with the lure of the big feed. He closed the door and returned to the window and thought about Kath. She had married some doctor from the university and probably had never forgiven him for leaving. Loftus had no compunction facing John Garvey, but seeing Kath again remained his greatest fear. Chapter 5 Phil burrowed himself at a booth in the corner, lighted by a metal sconce mounted on the barnboard wall. Loftus jaunted across the loft toward his friends. This place has a bad reputation, pal. The mustache Phil looked up from his plate. So I've been told. Sit down, Tom. I've been doing some thinking about your brain. Loftus crawled into the booth and propped his elbows on the wood. Figured me out, have you? Phil smiled and cut his steak. I think you're fearful and searching for something, a place that will give you answers to long-standing questions. You strongly desire to find a passageway to that ideal place. 
On top of that, you feel threatened by something in the past that's eating away at you. I think it was triggered in the midst of the battle in China. Fear will do that. Is that all? Loftus smiled and slid out of the booth. Well, have a nice night, Phil. Tom, sit down. No more aliens in Canada? asked Loftus. Phil grinned and sipped his coffee. I haven't checked. What I really fear, Phil, is this inner vengeance. Its presence causes me tremendous fear, as if I'm in danger. But what about the oneness? The oneness, according to your dream, was supposed to stop this evil. What's the oneness, Tom? Loftus shook his head. I don't know. Somehow they all resonate together, but I just don't know. Did their minds join together? He shook his shoulders. Phil, I don't know. I'm sure there are reasons for your fear of evil. What about your early life? He pushed his knife into the butter and spread it over a piece of oatmeal bread. You lived in upstate New York, right? Yeah, we lived on Lake Cayuga. Normal childhood, mother, father, and sister. What's the point, Phil? Phil mashed the bread in his mouth. Your earliest memory. When I was six or seven, traveling down the thruway with my father. It was a real bad snowstorm. You were six or seven? Nothing earlier than that? That's very unusual. Loftus sat down, ordered a beer, and watched the waitress leave. Then he leaned toward Phil and spoke in a low voice. You know what? I've always wanted to go into space. You know, find dining with the aliens on some other planet somewhere. In the dreams, the Montang are trying to find this shrine. You mean the Bunshaf. Why, that's the place with all the answers and the passageway to other worlds. You're looking for answers, my friend. I got news for you, Phil. I'm not a religious man. I trust nobody but myself. And Zach. Well, of course, Zach. I think you're taking responsibility for Allsworthy's death and the way things degenerated in this country later. That's the evil you fear and this oneness to prevent it. Well, there's more. Nathan had our final staff meeting in Cordova on the east side of Prince William Sound. Why was he in Alaska? Oh, he loved cruising his yacht along the far north coast during the summer. He was born in Alaska, Phil. Well, I didn't know that. Nathan became involved in the service as a young man. At age 25, he was in charge of all oil operations for AlaskaCon in the far north. They recruited him for several big deals. By the time he was 30, he was a sector commander. What kind of man was he? He was the most organized man I've ever met. He understood that organization is the key to representation. He was dead on honest. People can't have a say in government if that government is either incompetent or corrupt. He made things work and allowed people to bring up their own standard of living. Phil looked up from his tablet. So what happened at Long Beach? I had all my bases covered at Long Beach. No one could tell me why that boat blew up. Loftus felt the tears in his eyes and his face flushed. Damn this. Tom, why is it important how that boat blew up? Because this country has disintegrated. Children are starving. There's fighting in the streets. You need a pass to get into the suburbs. Allsworthy wouldn't have put walls around the cities, Phil. He walked the cities. He stood with the poor and the captains of industry. His dream is gone because of me. 
Tom Loftus, the individual responsible for I was responsible. You did the best you could, Tom. Loftus banged the table. Well, the best wasn't good enough, was it? Sometimes it has to be. I don't believe that, and neither did Nathan. Right. And now look at you, hallucinating about aliens and cluster ships, fearing evil. And I know it's not easy knowing that the man who took what would have been your job is totally incompetent. There's nothing I can do about Harmon Mundy. Phil pushed his plate aside and leaned forward. Listen to what your body is telling you, Tom. You have roadblocks and you haven't even addressed them. If Mundy is so bad, then work to get rid of him. Easier said than done. His wrist calm sounded. The display panel lighted with Zack's code numbers. O'Brien was now safely in Mikey's apartment. He looked up at Phil. When I was a boy, I'd hear a baseball announcer in my mind as I stepped up to the plate. The pitch came in and I connected like I had never connected. You know, the sound of wood against the bat? And I kept hearing the play-by-play. That ball is going, going, gone. Phil rolled his eyes. The hero. You and the service were just made for each other. What do you mean? You want to be the hero. Phil stood and started to put down the money for the check, but Loftus pushed his hand back. Don't worry about it, Phil. Tom, there's nothing bad about being the hero unless you're not being the hero. Loftus rubbed his face. Listen, it's okay to be the hero if that's what you enjoy doing. Where we run into trouble, Loftus, is getting caught up in things we kind of want to do and don't want to do at all. Yeah, I kind of like having the loft. Phil grinned. He had a space between his two front teeth. Picture a Ferris wheel, spinning upward as we strive or we may even make it to the top. The question is whether we want to be on that ride or do we want to be in the center. I don't understand that at all. In the center, there's no mess. It's balancing yourself rather than letting what you're doing get out of whack. How do I find that out? I can't tell you that. Only you know. Like the baseball going over the fence? Make it sound like destiny. That is exactly what it is. The last bartender closed the outside oak doors and Loftus wandered around the overturned stools on the tables. The silver wall sconces in the lounge remained lit and he welcomed the silence in his restaurant. He skirted the bar and poured himself a straight scotch. The decision to become involved with O'Brien had made him suspicious of everyone. Even Phil worked for the service and the service had a way of making trusted friends into pawns. The whiskey burned his throat as Zack thundered down the office stairs. Two o'clock, and all is well. You want a beer, Zack? I could use a beer, Captain. He took one of the stools off the bar and sat down. None of the detailed checks in O'Brien have turned up anything significant. Significant information could have been redacted by the service. I doubt it. He's not that important. Did you get those electronic gizmos to Mikey? Full pack, I instructed him to use the amplifiers as well as the private risk comm. I'll construct whatever background information that he requests. Loftus nodded. He opened the tap and filled the mug and slid it down the bar. Perfectly charming day, old buddy, huh? Zack gulped the beer. I'm getting that feeling again. Oh? Loftus swished the ice cubes around the glass. And what might that feeling be? 
The feeling I got when we crossed the mountains into China in the Sino conflict. That feeling I used to get when DeLuca would call us into his office and tell us how honored we were to be Panthers, and then he'd ship us out somewhere to be shot at. Loftus looked at his friend's dark brows and mustache. Zack was the only person he fully trusted. Look, Zack, the feeling I got when Allsworthy flew us to New York and told you you were heading up campaign security. Oh, that feeling, replied Loftus, laughing loudly. (laughs) Ha ha! Zack gulped the beer, smacked his lips, and slid the mug back for a refill. That good old feeling you get when you're running for your life and they're firing right at your butt. Or having entire countries out to get you. Yeah, that's it. Loftus sent down a fresh mug. The minor things like torture and assassination, that old-time feeling, yeah. I shook hands with that old-time feeling with O'Brien up in my office this afternoon. Loftus activated the screen behind the bar and flipped through the bands, moving past a 20th century movie with spaceships and flying saucers. Right up your alley, Captain. Oh, go ahead, rub it in, Zack. Maybe they should make a movie about my dreams, except nobody would believe it. Actually, Phil heard some report of alien sightings up in northern Canada. No way. Zack drank more beer and grinned at the strange ships. Then he furrowed his brow. I know DeLuca was brought into the White House as an internal security advisor right after the rocket attack on the vice president. That was 18 months ago. I think he has Monday looking over his shoulder, said Loftus. Then maybe we shouldn't send Mikey to Appleton. Don't get me wrong. I think he's sharp and wants to impress you, but dealing with the likes of John Garvey and company is another story. They'll do anything to protect Vandermeer and any Rima project. Loftus pressed his lips. Mikey can do it. Right, Mikey can do it. He can speak plainer than that, Zack. Kath, you're afraid to even be on the eastern seaboard with her. Listen, I'm aware of this, okay? Zack lowered the beer and canted around the bar. You should have gone back there a long time ago, Tom. You and I both know that. She married John Putnam. They have a son. I can't go back there. She loved you. That was 20 years ago, old buddy. Loftus finished the whiskey and pressed his lips. We loved each other, and I left. You know, you can talk to Phil until you're blue in the face, said Zack, pointing. But I'll tell you what your problem is. You always deny your true feelings and then follow what people expect you to do. Loftus would not have taken such guff except from Zack. We all had future dreams and plans. Those dreams were just a defense mechanism for being young. That's all. I don't believe how cynical you're becoming, Captain. Well, life will do that to you. He cut the screen signal and did not pour himself another drink. What about O'Brien? Get him the hell out of the city tomorrow. Put him in the San Luis Obispo condo. We need more information on him, even if it means starting to screen service communications. I can't believe he just slipped out of Appleton unnoticed. Monday must have taken charge of the field operations. Oh, yeah. Loftus laughed and gripped his friend's shoulder. <laughs> Monday must know all about this phase one. And that's scary. Having Harmon Monday running something of this magnitude, something so secret that even Frank doesn't know about it. Have a good sleep, Captain, and don't take any wooden spaceships. Loftus grinned. Thanks uh, for laying it on the line, old buddy. Sometimes I need a swift kick in the butt. I know that, Captain. 
Zack lit a cigar and smiled as Loftus trudged up the stairs. He could always count on Zack to make him laugh. With each step, he felt himself drawn toward the center of a clandestine operation of great proportions, and once immersed in it, he would finally have to face up to his past, overcome it, or leave it behind forever. Loftus has connected with his past, which will draw him into his destinies in more ways than I can say, without ruining the book, folks. In it will span time and space, and just how you get there is staggering. Be assured as you plow through this book that it's all connected and will further connect in the Shanghai Incursion. Join me next time in Episode 2 as Loftus becomes, shall we say, reactivated? I'm Robert P. Fitton in my de Havilland DH-4 biplane, which is taking me between the Carpen and the Barillaton at the Semta. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.